Hello everyone and welcome to another SACPA session. SACPA acknowledges that this event takes place on the lands of the Blackfoot people and Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3. And we pay respect to their past, present, future, cultural and future cultural heritage, beliefs and relationship to the land. SACPA commits to assist reconciliation efforts by raising awareness of the way past, present and present injustices can be reconciled. Today we're very happy to have with us uh, Barry Morishida. Um, welcome to SACPA Barry and thank you very much for your time here today. Uh, Barry is a long-serving councillor and mayor in the city of Brooks. Barry is well known in municipal governments across the province, having spent seven years on the board and executive of the Alberta Urban Municipalities Association, also known as the AUMA, becoming the association's longest serving president. His experience traveling throughout the province in this capacity and his passion for building communities earned him the honorary lifetime membership from the AUMA. He retired from municipal politics in 2021 and has moved into the provincial arena as the leader of the Alberta party. Barry is a proud Canadian of Japanese descent, married with two children and two grandchildren living in the city of 100 Hellos, Brooks, Alberta. Thank you very much for joining us, Barry, and we look forward to your talk. Thank you very much, Annalise. Uh, I really uh, am excited about the opportunity. Um, having just been uh, moved out, so to speak, on Monday uh, at the swearing-in ceremony for the City of Brooks, which was my last official duty, which, by the way, I was really blessed uh, to be able to swear in my daughter uh, with the Council of the City of Brooks. Uh, she's the only female there and the youngest member, so that was an exciting transition and uh, made the departure uh, very wonderful. And um, so I uh, have to thank everybody for that. Um, I just want to acknowledge that I am actually in Edmonton, Alberta today, so I'm on Treaty 6 territory and, and home of the Métis Nation uh, of Alberta Region 4. Um, I was really intrigued when I was invited by uh, your uh, council to talk about the municipal election outcomes and particularly with uh, kind of an overarching view of did partisan politics influence the results? And, and to kind of, I think, to get to, to, to where we are today, it's really important to look back as, as to why this has become an issue. So over a, over a period of time, um, Alberta has been really lucky to not have partisan politics. There have been, in the past, uh, with a couple of uh, high-profile high uh, opportunities in Airdrie when some former Wild Rose members created a slate in Airdrie, uh, and we're very unsuccessful in getting elected. But beyond that, there hasn't been a lot of organized uh, partisan politics brought into it. However, a, a few years ago, a couple of years ago, the Local Authority Elections Act in Alberta was modified and, and uh, amended by the current government. And it seemed to have a bit of a bend to allow two things into municipal government uh, that were, you know, we had fought hard at AUMA uh, to keep out. And that was uh, essentially large donors and 
large anonymous donors, uh, and also uh, the by bringing in the referendum questions, there was we believed and and we still believe that there was a focused effort to drive a certain type of population to the polls in order to affect the outcomes of uh, municipal races. So first of all, just looking at the LAEA uh, amendment at the very beginning. So there was uh, some changes, as you know, in municipal politics versus provincial or federal politics. There is no tax credit for donations. Uh, there is no um, kind of centralized uh, reporting system. And what, what happened in the last, so we had two things happen. So third-party advertisers, I think, is probably one of the big focuses. Um, third-party advertising in Alberta right now can spend up to about a quarter of a million dollars without reporting. And that is problematic. So if they're going to spend more than 10000 they must register. I believe it's 10000 they must register. However... Uh, there is no public registry. In fact, every municipality actually has the responsibility to register third party. So we have a bit of a hodgepodge of reporting uh, early in the election period. Now, the campaign period in, in Alberta runs now from the beginning of the election year right to uh, election day. And what that was seen to do and what we think, you know, what the obvious kind of outcome was, was to be able to drive a lot of extra money into certain messaging going forward. Um, a longer period of time, a sustained period of time, something that individual candidates for the most part would not be able to compete with. And then there is the reporting piece, like I said, no disclosure up to a quarter of a million dollars. And then if you spend more than that, uh, you, can, you don't have to disclose till March of 2022 which is well past the election period and therefore wouldn't have uh, likely any bearing on what people might think of who gave what and how they gave it the other thing about the third party advertising issue that's quite problematic is that you can have several of these you can be part of several of these and so uh and there are no restrictions to how much you can put in i think thirty thousand dollars per person is the is the limit and I, I kind of view that as a bit restrictionless because at 30,000, uh, you, you could really have some uh, big players sway the game. So that's kind of one of the aspects of, of how partisan politics starts to wedge its way in when you don't have good reporting for financial con contributions and financial spending, and uh, you don't have a, a, a very public way of allowing people the opportunity to see who's behind those packs, so to speak, and, and who's who's funding them. The other thing that happened with the LAEA, uh, the Local Authority Elections Act's amendments, were the uh, unlimited amount of donations a single person could make across the province. So the rules were changed. Uh, originally, the original rule was gonna be the 30,000. Um, AMA lobbied really hard to change that. Uh, what we ended up with, though, was not what we wanted, but was $2,500 per candidate per person. So um, if I was extremely wealthy, which just for the record, I am not, but if I was, I could literally give $2,500 to any candidates across the province, no matter what race they were in. So I could give a 1,000 candidates $2,500. I could get my family members to give $2,500 to those same candidates. 
And when you look at municipal elections, for the most part, except in the very biggest of our cities, they are very small dollar affairs. Um, the city of Brooks, when I ran in uh, for the mayor's chair in uh, a by-election in 2016, I did not spend $10,000. So that gives you a scale. Um, whereas in the big cities, you know, they might spend uh, 50 to 100, some spend less. But, you know, I've seen lots of successful candidates spend in that range. So when you disenfranchise people who are trying to serve by making uh, the dollar and the campaign dollar much more influential, again, partisan politics can sneak into municipal politics because of who's funding those races. And so all of these things, those things on the funding side were done. Now, when it came to the referendum questions, there's no doubt in our mind, the reason that they were particularly the equalization one, and even the daylight savings one, their intention, um, although, you know, they they often deny it, but I, I think it's clear the reason they brought the questions in was to drive people of a certain political persuasion um, to municipal uh, polls. Typically, we see very relatively low turnout compared to provincial or federal elections. In fact, with the limited amount of numbers that the uh, Municipal Affairs publishes on this issue, broadly across the province, about 37% of the what they deem as eligible voters voted, uh, roughly compared to, you know, in the 55, 65, 70% range for provincial and federal. So they really felt because they've been successful at the provincial level that if they could get these voters to municipal polls, their candidate, so to speak, would have a better chance of winning. And if you recall at the very beginning of their of the term of this last government in particular, uh, 2019, they really went after the big cities, particularly Calgary and Edmonton. And there was a feeling that a lot of these rules were made, in fact, to drive support to uh, more of their, the conservative, the UCP kind of style of politics into municipal politics and using these other uh, questions in order to influence the results. Now, it is very difficult um, this close to the past election to really determine that to any great degree. Uh, the reason is, is because data is poorly collected for municipal elections. Um, like I said, you, I, I went on to try to find how many third party uh, advertisers, for instance, were registered. Uh, because there is no central registry, you have to check every single municipality. And ex and except for Calgary and Edmonton that I'm aware of so far, and like I said, there's over 300 municipalities in the province of Alberta. Uh, Edmonton and Calgary did have um, online a presence where I believe the city of Edmonton had three uh, listed, three or four listed, and the city of Calgary had 10. However, there's no data, there's no backup, there's just a name with a contact, basically. Um, there was one municipality that we contacted and all they said was, well, call us if you want to know. Well, <laughs> not very public, uh, not very transparent. And again, uh, uh, the system, I believe, you know, those details that were left out and not, uh, again, allow the incremental influence of partisan politics to come into municipalities, which is, uh, I'll have to say from my own personal perspective, is an extremely dangerous thing to happen. 
um, we, we, we need to rely on a collaborative, uh, fact-based decision-making model in municipalities. And it's not just because uh, of a whole bunch of, you know, ideological reasons or philo philosophical reasons. It's actually practically the best way to fix things and make things better. And so for people to come into those uh, chairs with a preset notion of what should and shouldn't be done is a disservice to our to our uh, communities and is dangerous in the long run. In a couple of community or a couple of jurisdictions where we've seen uh, partisan politics come in, we've seen it in places like Vancouver, uh, Montreal. Uh, there's some in, in Quebec. There's a lot of party politics in municipal level, and you see a lot less uh, activity happening in terms of initiatives uh, because you are in fact locking horns on on an ideological stance that you had prior to the election and you've backed yourself into a corner that doesn't allow you to make any progress on issues. So those are very important things to, to remember. Um, anecdotally, I can tell you that from some of my conversations with some of my newly elected and, and unfortunately some defeated candidates, that anecdotally it uh, partisan politics did have some influence. Yeah, Edmonton is a bit of a is a is a pretty good example where the NDP uh, used uh, you know uh, the the tactics uh, of color uh, in terms of sign colors. Um, there was uh, third party advertising that was done on behalf of a lot of slates of candidates. There were um, endorsements made from political candidates or political sitting MLAs and electeds. Um, so anecdotally, I think it did have a, a, an effect in some larger centers. Uh, however, it's really too early to tell with the data uh, and the um, without kind of knowing what the actual third party advertising, what the spend was on behalf of candidates to see whether there were some particularly in some close races, whether that happened. Um, I, I, I just want to before we go on to uh, the next slide to look, kind of look at some of the outcomes. I just want to make a mention that um, the Senate race itself as well can arguably, arguably be said to, again, produce a partisan result. And when we look at the results, I think we'll see uh, to some degree that was successful, but the impact on the municipal election itself is, is hard to gauge at this point. So with that, how about if we go to our first slide, which is talks about voter turnout. All right, so voter turnout, like I said earlier, the, the limited amount of information that municipal affairs gives us based on uh, um, eligible and voting was about 37% across the province. And as you can see, I just did some select, I, I put Calgary and Edmonton up there because they represent half the population of the province. And then I just selected some larger and just some random communities across southern Alberta. And you'll, you can see that um, uh, they ranged all the way from 23%, uh, as low as 23% uh, to 49% in Calgary. It's interesting to note that um, even with all of these were contested mayoral elections as well. So not one of these communities did not have a contest where the mayoral seat wasn't wasn't contested. And typically that brings out a little better turnout. 
it's interesting to see the difference between Calgary and Edmonton, for instance, where you had nearly 50% turnout in Calgary, but a full 11 points less in Edmonton. And it's always been a bit of a mystery <laughs> as to why people don't show up to vote in municipal elections. But I, but I think it has to do a little bit with the fact that, on the whole, most municipal governance and most municipal government runs along relatively quiet in their four-year four cycle. We certainly have our issues and, and uh, you know, when I was the mayor, I certainly came across a few that certainly woke everybody up for a while and, and made for some very interesting times. Um, and I was actually expecting myself a higher turnout uh, because of COVID, because there was a lot of frustration about all kinds of measures and all kinds of activity that flowed into the municipal sphere, even though municipalities didn't have a lot of control. So I actually did anticipate a larger turnout. Um, so I was quite surprised, actually, that, that we didn't see a, a bit of a bump overall. But I think it's important to note, then, that if that, in fact, has been the case in the past and it continues to be the case in the future, that I can say that, in my experience, that uh, a relatively low turnout means that people are relatively happy with that governance and that they don't see any burning issues that, uh, you know, that um, encourage them or incentivize them to show up and vote uh, for their municipal candidate. And so it, to that, when I think about partisanship, it did not really influence because I would have expected to see a bigger bump in terms of what, uh, what the turnout was. Um, on the next slide, I'm just going to show the Senate results. And the Senate results point to a tiny bit of a different picture, although it's very consistent with how Alberta uh, votes. So um, there were uh, 1.1 million ballots uh, sent out or used, I guess. I'm not sure what the proper term is. The interesting point, of uh, one of the couple of interesting things I'll point out here, 212, nearly 213,000 of them were rejected. And of those 213, 205,000 were just passed in blank, which is a significant amount, 20% nearly, of the total amount of ballots. So you can see that people were not really very happy uh, with the, the, the whole idea of the Senate. And again, the Senate election and the, the equalization, uh, we'll get to that a little bit more, very political statements made at the beginning of the process, rather than in my mind to you know, to get the best candidates elected to the Senate. I, I, I think our system didn't support what was happening. I don't think a lot of people supported what was happening. And as a result, I think you see some of that borne out in the results. So we have the two, uh, the three candidates that were uh, identified themselves as the Conservative Party of Canada, Canada candidates come in one, two, three. Um, then we had uh, Doug Horner, who is a former uh, Provincial Conservative Cabinet Minister, longtime MLA, uh, come in fourth. Uh, the, uh, the the first really independent candidate, Karina Pillay, a former mayor of Slave Lake, uh, who uh, became a doctor. Uh, she's a she's a brilliant lady. Uh, she was kind of the highest really independent. And then it's interesting to note that Duncan Kinney, who ran his campaign as a as a farce of these on the Senate elections, he comes in next with 128,000 votes, which 
is quite fascinating. Um, again, speaks to how seriously I think uh, a lot of Albertans took the outcomes of the Senate election. And then we go down and then there's some PPC uh, who identify themselves as People Party uh, candidates. Another independent, uh, Rick Bonnet, who was a former mayor of Pinoca, ran. Uh, and then uh, Jet Thunder, we can't we can't go by without speaking about Jet Thunder, who got 75,000 votes um, and his campaign was hilarious. I don't know if you, anybody had the chance to look at some of his YouTube videos, but if you need a few seconds of entertainment, they're certainly worth worthwhile. But overall, again, uh, when it comes to the partisan influence here, we can certainly see that the one, two, three finish of the Conservative Party of Canada certainly reflects what happened federally in terms of uh, the federal election. And because of the amount of people that vote for the farce candidates and the fact that there were uh, 200,000 rejected ballots, I think really does speak to that the Senate election itself, the process and what's going on should be re-examined uh, as to what the outcome is actually supposed to be and whether or not the money spent, because let's uh, you know make no mistake, running the Senate elections and the referendums did cost uh, the province and ultimately us money. And so I think that deserves to have a really good uh, review and to determine whether we should be doing this at all. So um, let's go look at the next slide and we're gonna look at what do our new councils look like, which is a very fascinating thing. I gotta grab some notes out of here. Um, so it's divided by community and then uh, on the chart you'll see uh, an incumbent to new ratio in one column and then a female to male ratio in another column. Uh, one of the things again that we don't do in uh, municipal politics and we don't do enough is we don't clearly identify a diverse group of candidates either by uh, you know whether they're in the BIPOC community or the trans community, the LGBTQ plus community and I think at some point we have to consider uh, how, whether we should or not and whether we should and I, I personally believe we should. I know some members of course um, who are uh, have been elected and are uh, part of those communities. However, I think it's important for us to have data and information that allows us to see if we are actually making progress in terms of gender parity, in terms of diversity uh, representation on our councils. Um, because I think it is important in order to get good governance. So just a quick summary, you can see the ratios there, but the turnover was uh, pretty significant in this group. Um, uh, of the 72 positions available, 33 were incumbents and 39 were newcomers. And I uh, classified newcomers as anybody who hadn't been on council in the previous term. So in Okotoks, for instance, I would have called uh, Tanya Thorne, who is the mayor, but was a councillor, I would have classified her as an incumbent as she was an elected member before. And then, um, so there was significant turnover, but that is not terribly unusual in municipal politics. Uh, 2017, I think the analysis was about 52% turnover for, from incumbent to new. Uh, so it, it does happen pretty regularly on its own every four years. In the uh, columns of gender, uh, male, uh, female versus mayor, about a third of those elected in this group here uh, were female. And uh, we're getting there, um, but again, I think it's important to point this data out uh, because you can still see that not only uh, 
bar uh, some information that I gleaned. Lisa Holmes, who was doing a searching for Izena project, which was based and uh, named after an Edmonton councillor, first Edmonton female councillor. Uh, she still noted that only about 30% of the candidates were female again this time, uh, which again is troublesome. And we've identified, you know, through a process, several of the problems there. And we need to work very hard in order to make it um, an equitable, at least, opportunity uh, for people other than men to run in municipal elections. Because I can tell you, sitting on an all-male council my last time, you had to actively search out the perspective outside of your council group. And it's not like the councillors weren't, they're, they're great, they were very good councillors, but it's very difficult at times uh, when faced with decisions to have to go search for a perspective rather than be able to turn to it and, and have it speak to you directly. So I think we have to work hard on that. But again, uh, I think progress uh, made and it just illustrates again the turnover. And when it refers to the partisan piece of it again, there's just not enough analysis available to know whether uh, a lot of those new were part of slates. I know a few of them were part of um, certain types of slates, but nonetheless, uh, it's too early to tell whether it had a significant influence. Um, the last slide uh, we'll talk about is the referendum questions. And again, uh, I think there's, if we go back to why the questions are there uh, on the provincial, we'll deal with the provincial numbers first. The reason they were there was to provide a certain result and a political outcome versus I think where a referendum really is, the reason for a referendum is to get a real time understanding about how people feel about a specific issue. The other thing uh, uh, with the provincial, again, as I said, driving people to the polls, I think, to get a certain outcome was a motivation, as well as being able to deflect certain activity that was happening. The equalization referendum was something that was in the fair deal panel uh, process, um, a, a very complex issue that is difficult to, uh, I think, understand and make any progress with, with a single line question. And again, I, I, I question, particularly referendums on these types of questions uh, that are not binding, that are only recommendations, don't have to be moved, uh, you know, whether or not they make sense to uh, spend the money, confuse the voters. I know I was in line uh, myself at a voting station when a lady in front of me who is, you know, how many ballots, What do you want all the ballots? And the lady said, well, what do you mean all the ballots? I want the ballot for the municipal election. Well, there's also a Senate election. There's also a referendum question. And when she got to the ballot box, she really didn't know what was going on, which is, again, uh, questions the wisdom of whether we should do it or not. Um, the other thing that's really interesting uh, is the Lethbridge Ward ward system and the third bridge construction and I am not a big fan of referendums to determine. I think these things put a new council in particular in particularly tough place. So um, you know with just around 55-60% saying yes to those questions as a newly elected councillor are you obliged now, this is non-binding as well, are you obliged now to move towards a ward system at the expense of 44% of people who don't want it. And the same thing with bridge construction. Typically, those kinds of questions are answered and dealt with in a very methodical way through the way we do our 10-year, multiple-year capital plans. We do it based on all kinds of things. And a simple question, again, I think is very difficult 
for people to vote on. I, you know, when I, I, I lived in Lethbridge a little while, and if somebody had come up to me and said, hey, are you in favor of another bridge to cross the river? Uh, that'll make it easier for you to get from the west side to the east side. I would have said, yes, I'm in favor. Um, but if somebody would have said, asked the question, it's going to cost a billion dollars to build the bridge, are you in favor? I would have said, hmm, maybe not. So I, th I think referendum questions, uh, if they're actually done as kind of a, um, a poll in terms of what public opinion is, versus uh, I think some people by voting yes think if we get enough people to vote yes, we'll have a ward system. If we get enough people to have, vote yes, we'll have a bridge. And I don't think that's really what the purpose of this is. And so calling it a referendum or having a referendum question, I think is a bit misleading. And I think, again, we should examine how we do that in order for people to continue to have faith and uh, a view, a good view of their uh, municipal system. Um, and uh, so with that, I'm going to turn it back over to you, Annalise, and uh, for questions and answers. How's that? Wonderful. Thank you very much. That was a a very enlightening talk thank you i uh, will jump right into the questions that are uh coming in fast and furious leona jacobs the senate election is an agenda of manning slash harper slash now kenny as senators are appointed it is also an insertion of partisanship into something the senate in brackets that shouldn't be what are your thoughts on that um, well, you know, I, I think uh, she's right uh, in in her first uh, assertion. Secondly, I think, you know, we have to give credit where credit is due. I believe that the um, historical um, reason for the Senate existing, the, the chamber of sober second thought, I think is actually starting, it is starting to change with uh, this pre last government's change in appointing senators based on an application process and then having them vetted and appointed. And uh, I can tell you that I actually filled out the Senate application forms. Um, they're a very significant um, endeavor and very, very thorough. And so when we look at, uh, I believe, as some of our recent senators from Alberta, Senator Simons uh, in particular, who I, I, I happen to know a bit, um, choosing senators based on something else besides partisanship is going to serve us well if we keep allowing it to happen. And so again, uh, I think you're, she's absolutely right that the partisanship of this shows clearly the Conservative Party of Canada are the top three finishers. They're um, using the, uh, you know, the idea of uh, respect democracy to appoint them. However, uh, the Senate has always been an appointed body. I think it's swayed from its original purpose for a long time, but I think it's swinging back. And I personally am supporting the idea of having independent senators appointed based on the merits uh, so they can bring out the things of diversity, a broad range of subject matter experts uh, versus party politics. Because, again, I, I think party politics uh, is actually one of the terrible things sometimes we have to deal with when it comes to provincial and federal politics. So, yes, I think uh, we should be going down the road of independence that way. Okay, our next question comes from Ken Chapman. Trudeau released liberal appointed senators from requiring 
to aligning with the LPHC. They are acting as independent. He is unlikely to appoint party-based senators for the two vacancies in Alberta. So it's more a comment than a question, but I wonder if you can comment on it anyway. Yeah, I I think it is highly unlikely. it's interesting, you know. I've talked to some of the a couple of the independent candidates, who were curious, uh, you know, were wondering, and and I I wonder with them as well is whether their standings in the election will influence their applications, uh, because as even as Premier Kenny said, he's encouraged his three the three top finishers or uh, I believe the three anyway to fill out the proper paperwork because there's a process to be appointed to the Senate. And uh, but he's asking for that consideration about where they how many votes they got to be put in that uh, queue in a certain place. So I, I again, I, I we can continue to try to refine the process. However, uh, again, just in terms of the election itself, I don't know a lot of people who knew a lot about the candidates or knew where they stood or why they were running. Um, and I think that really is uh, probably the the fly in the ointment of the election process for senators. I don't think it was a, a very discernible contest. And uh, by crowding it in with two other things going on, the municipal election and a referendum question, I think we do a disservice to that process. So uh, I, I'm not saying that uh, elections don't have a place in the selections of senators. But uh, certainly the way this one happened, I don't think uh, is going to result in any of those um, people being appointed outside of the current process, that's for sure. Uh, Leon, um, sorry, Laura Schultz, are you aware of any other province who allow third party advertising, comma, huge contributions, lack of transparency of who is contributing? Or is Alberta a dark horse in this regard? Uh, you, you know, there is a, a very, very mixed bag of requirements and reporting uh, across the country. Um, there are some jurisdictions that have uh, better ones. There are some that don't. Uh, I, I think the one of the problems is, is that uh, there was a survey that was done on the changes to the LAEA. And unfortunately, the province chose to disregard all of the popular opinion in that regard. Um, and, you know, that's more to the point. I, I think in terms of Alberta's political uh, climate, they wanted disclosure, they want transparency, and, and they want proper reporting. And that's what the provincial government should have given them. Um, so, I, you know, you'll have to ask the, the, the powers that be directly why they chose to go against that. But it, it, in my way of thinking, um, the rules in Alberta should reflect should uh, reflect the rules, uh, the disclosure and the transparency that Albertans want. And I don't think uh, the rules uh, have that in it right now. Leona Jacobs, given your observations re municipal election financing, what changes would you recommend? Well, you know, I, I broadly in my own mind, when we talked about this, I, I think the consideration uh, of uh, again full disclosure before the election is number one so this day and age when we collect data so if you collect you know it's a spreadsheet you post it on your website or you post it on the municipality's website uh, disclosure about who's donating uh, before is is uh, number one that I think is the transparency what did you spend 
uh, who helped you collect, who'd you get the money from, and that has to be done before the election. Because I think it does matter. Uh, people, it does matter to people where they would vote, depending on where people collect their money. And uh, my point there was, I, I was challenged several times on this because that was AUMA's position going in. You know that people were scared. Well, I, you know, my my guy won't give me money if his name's going to be released. Well, uh, I, I'm sorry, but part of that the thing that keeps democracy as true to a good way of governance and electing our elected officials is disclosure. And if you're not participating by being a candidate, but you're interested in participating by being a donor, then I think you should be, if, you're, if your uh, goals and your motivation is noble, you should not have any problem with anybody seeing that you gave to X candidate because you thought they were a great candidate. And so the, the, the false uh, narrative about that, uh, you know, it's going to scare away donors. Well, you know, if it is, maybe those are donors that shouldn't be be part of the process potentially if they're that afraid of what they're they're doing or what they're doing and the other thing is is if uh, donors uh, if we don't have disclosure uh, particularly now in the third party with being able to spend a quarter million dollars over a period of time um, if we don't react and respond properly to this we will have undue influence on campaigns and it'll only be a matter of time before people understand that by uh, changing the smaller races which you can do disproportionately to the big races uh, that you could actually skew it very very much so I think um, we have to deal with this seriously and in my my opinion disclosure prior to an election is the number one way to do it um, just for uh, the folks listening I'm just going to skip a question because the next question um, relates to a previous question and I think I want to keep it contained so um, that's Mark hang on I'll be with you shortly Ken Chapman who did the survey and where can we find it and the survey he's talking about is in relation to Laura Schultz question are you aware of the province who allowed third-party advertising use contribution lots of transparency of who's contributing and in your answer you mentioned a survey and Ken Chapman yeah. was wants to know what that survey who did that survey and where can we find it so that survey was not publicly released uh, but it was foiped by the AUMA and I believe by uh, a couple of media agencies so that's uh, that's how that's how I know it's in the survey because we foiped it um, so to Ken uh, Ken, if you're out there, if you want to contact me later, we can maybe get you some results. How's that? Excellent. Okay, back to Mark Goodall's question. Why do you think the government chose daylight savings rather than standard time? Saskatchewan keeps standard time all year long. Wouldn't standard time make more sense? You know, I... Uh, uh, it, on the surface of the look that I, I gave this, um, because I voted against what was on the referendum, don't mind telling you that, uh, I didn't understand why there weren't options. However, again, there are a lot of complexities to this issue. Um, and again, for people to kind of go in a ballot box, have a ballot box question, yes or no, uh, doesn't serve uh, what what is the outcome? Are we trying to be more in tune with our Western neighbors? 
Are we trying to um, be safer? As we know, there's been several articles, uh, several, a lot of research done on whether daylight savings time affects people, certainly during the time change in terms of safety and things. So I think it deserves a more uh, robust public consideration versus just being on the ballot. That being said, I would have uh, rather have seen an option for Albertans uh, because maybe there would have been a better uh, discourse on the question itself. So yes, I would have rather have seen uh, either or rather than only one. So, um, but that at, at the at the radius, we aren't going to see it for a while, I don't think. Um, I'm going to ask a question of my own, if that's okay. Um, mm -hmm. You um, in your slide, we uh, in your slide about um, how do new council look, and I'm going to just pop it up for folks so that they can see it. You mention um, you talk about female male candidates or or like the 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 mix of those councils, uh, but that only thirty percent, I believe, was the stat that you gave of women ran or or female identified female ran. Um, we have heard a lot about the discourse in politics and how, how awful it is, specifically for most politicians, but I think for female politicians, it gets particularly violent. Any ideas on how to change that? How, how do we encourage women to run and how do we make the, 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 the arena safer for women to run. Well, I think I think there's there's two things. You, you know, this isn't. I, I don't think you can regulate this. Um, so beyond what we have for laws already, I don't think we can overregulate it. But I think we can speak out, and I, I'm speaking to everybody here uh, that has a view. And I, I'll, I'll give you a personal example. So <laughs> my daughter, who was uh, there were there were two females running in the in the election for the city of Brooks. Um, my daughter, uh, who is a teacher, uh, a mother, uh, a wife, um, was identified in two articles in the local um, media as the daughter of the current mayor. And that in itself is disturbing because everyone else on the ballot was referred to as a new candidate but my daughter was referred to as the daughter of the mayor, current mayor. Uh, and we just saw a headline in, I believe, I can't remember which magazine it was in, about uh, you know uh, the current uh, defense minister being replaced by someone who's a woman. Um, these, this, the, the use of language uh, to start with, we have to call out. And I think as leaders, uh, no matter what field we're in, and no matter for male or female, but and but I, I, but I say this particular to my to male leadership out there, we can't allow that conversation to continue on. That will start. That will start it. I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, my 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 daughter was being asked, "Well, are you going to have time to do it?" Um, she's she's like I said, married, a professional, has a job. Um, but I know of a couple of several male candidates that have families and a job and they weren't asked that question and but yet that conversation perpetuates itself so that would be a start to to really when you see equity being violated in terms of language and questions and just treating people different we have to start calling it out 
Um, uh, secondly, uh, when we see the vile, uh, particularly social media posts, which are particularly vile, again, I think we should, um, as especially if we know those people that are that are uh, well that are being uh, subjected to it, uh, we have to call it out to a degree, and we 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 should be blocking people like that. We shouldn't give them an opportunity to have a, uh, a you know, a place in your feed a place in your friend's feed. Um, and if we all did that, uh, you know, this would move uh, to become a lot quieter place. But right now, I think um, in, it's kind of the Wild West when it comes to social media. And uh, I personally have never engaged on social media. That's one thing to, is to not give them the opportunity. Just cut them off. If they're gonna be rude, they're gonna use vile language, they're gonna use threats. Uh, just cut them off and make sure they can't be seen because that is, the attraction. They get to be seen by others as uh, doing these terrible things and for some of them that seems to be the reason they do it. So let's block them, let's cut them off, let's not let them be on those feeds of yours and uh, and continue to talk about positive things. I think that's uh, going to be the way out of this uh, dark pot spot for us. Thank you. Our next question comes from Mark Goodall. Kenny keeps saying that the equalization question gives him fodder to renegate a more equitable equalization. Then why not ask the question straightforward? Should the government of Alberta strive top renegation? Should the government of Alberta strive top renegation the equalization formula or something to that effect? You know, you're going to have to ask Premier Kenny why he didn't, because I think I think it's clear. You know, I think Albertans, generally speaking, do want to see it to be a more responsive uh, formula. That there's some issues around it that don't make it 100% fair. That being said, uh, I don't know. I really don't. I I can personally tell you that I, I don't think it was the the right way to gather up support for a position. Uh, we should have had that laid out a bit better for us. Uh, that would have been my view, but you'll have to ask Mr. Kenny that question. We have invited him to come and speak with us. Yeah, well, on multiple on multiple occasions. <laughs> <laughs> Leona Jacobs, how much update was there of the AUMA pledge? Uh, you know that was uh, interesting. We 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 had to we had to be very careful because actually the third party advertising rules got in our way a little bit about documenting and posting. Uh, so I they I don't know because I resigned as the UMA president on August 13th. So I don't know the results. But I would encourage you to reach out even to your uh, current councillors, which whatever community you're in, to ask for that information because the UMA I know was compiling. Uh, how many uh, made the pledge and uh, I think it was just the beginning you know the goal when it first came out was to make sure that that dialogue of respectful uh, local transparent uh, conversations um, is something that has to be ongoing um, we should 
it should go without saying, but unfortunately it does not. We just made the comment about what happens on social media and some of the other things that go on. So it's the beginning of a dialogue. And again, I think we need everybody to, to ask those questions of their candidates. And that's, uh, but yeah, encourage us to go to your local can- local elected official who has access to AUMA resources to get that uh, information for you. Our next question comes from Laurie Schultz. Can you comment on the government's municipal funding structure and then in brackets, cutbacks? Yeah, well, I can tell you I wasn't in favor of them. And, uh, you know, the AUMA, again, uh, as the time I was on president, we, we offered several opportunities to work with municipalities uh, to be part of the process in terms of revenue, sharing revenue, riding the ups and downs of the economy uh, to allow predictability for municipalities. Um, but there are two things that go against, uh, that, that don't seem to fit with the current, and it's not just the current, it's been all provincial. I've been on the board for seven years, three different governments, I think I've had seven municipal affairs ministers. They all say, yeah, we really appreciate what municipalities do, however, uh, we never get down to problem solving. So. The funding formula should be um, predictable and it should reflect the amount of, of uh, responsibility and the amount of infrastructure that um, uh, municipalities deliver to Albertans and, and that hasn't really been thoroughly uh, considered. So we've seen cutbacks, uh, we know the new local government fiscal framework that comes into effect in 2023, it's going to be a further reduction for municipalities. And that is just not a plausible uh, path forward. Um, everything that municipalities do provides economic development, security, and quality of life for citizens. All of those things are what build this province. So uh, I think, again, we have to re-engage. Uh, I hope the new councils uh, really press this very, very hard. Uh, the fact is, is that without healthy uh, municipalities, without healthy communities, we can't have a healthy Alberta. And you can't continue to cut their funding uh, or not properly share the resources of this province with the people that are delivering that much service. So uh, I'll certainly be chipping in as much as I can in terms of that debate. I encourage all the new mayors and councils to do the same. And Laura Schultz with a, a second question. It can be argued that Calgary, Edmonton and Medicine had voted progressively with respect to gender and diversity. And it could be argued that Lethbridge and others were not as progressive. Any comments? You know, I, I think I, 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 I'm not knowing those individual races and not being able to watch the, the performance or what the individual can is for. I think it um, wouldn't be right for me to comment on whether that's true. But uh, I think it's interesting to note um, that across the larger centres, um, and there's about 22 of them, that nearly half of the mayors uh, have been replaced, uh, either retired or uh, were defeated. And uh, I think we're seeing more activity in terms of, of, of local consideration. And that is actually, I think, when we, when we use the word progressive, uh, I think, again, we look at people that do problem solving in a different way. They don't necessarily, um, you know, we try to put people on that spectrum from conservative to whatever, uh, left wing to right wing. 
But I think when we talk about progressive at the municipal level, I think really what we're talking about are good community builders that build solutions from the ground up that suit their space and we don't come in with preconceived notions. So to that point, I think for the most part in Alberta and certainly in the communities that you cited, I think they all did that. Um, So, uh, but but it, it would be unfair to just label I think councils as being progressive or not progressive based on who was elected. I think that the the proof is in what they do and uh, let's observe that, but let's make sure we are observing it and and making them accountable to us. Our next question comes from Beth Mundell. With the loss of provincial funding, what possibilities are there for cities to make money? Lethbridge used to have a power plant. Can cities make dollars through solar power? Yeah, you know, I, I know a lot of communities have looked through alternative revenue sources that don't include the provincial government. Uh, you know, and I think that's going to continue to happen. And there there are abilities to do that. It's, um, it's riskier. And the one thing we have to ask ourselves is whether some of the things we do need to be fully tax supported or whether they do need to be driven from a revenue source related to that activity. So, but I think you're going to see a lot more municipalities look for opportunities, whether it's in the energy field or other fields, uh, to consider the possibility of providing revenue sources for municipalities uh, and their citizens because it's a necessity. We have to remember that, you know, about a third of your property tax now doesn't excuse me, doesn't come to the municipality, it goes to the province directly in the in the term form of the education property tax. And uh, it, that, that makes a significant difference and uh, takes up a lot of space in terms of uh, municipalities revenue sources. So yes, I think you're going to see more of that happening. And uh, a lot of councils are, are going to be forced to do that. Beth Mundell, um, I'm going to read the question as is, but I think, I think, anyway, uh, Beth Mandel, you filled in the Senate application. Are you thinking of running for MLA or MP? I think what she means is, are you also thinking? Yeah. So, so yeah, no, I filled out the Senate application uh, prior to deciding that I was going to run, uh, to become the, run for the leadership of the Alberta party. So if, uh, to be perfectly clear, if someone was to say, hey, by the way, Barry, want to make you the senator, I would be declining that right now, <laughs> saying, no, I've got a job, and my job right now is, is the leader of the Alberta party. So yes, uh, at some point, I hope to to run for a uh, position as an MLA, and because as a leader, my, my ultimate goal is to become the premier of the province. So uh, yes, but I did do that before, and it was an interesting process, that's for sure. Okay, our next question comes from Laurie Schultz. What are your thoughts on the ward systems? I've mixed. I have mixed views. I I realize it's really difficult to go through a candidate list of thirty or forty and and pick the ones you think will do the good job. Um, but ward systems are complicated. And a, 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 an example I know that happens. So during budget uh, in a large center, there was a candidate who used to fight internally on the budget system to get his wards projects in the budget. 
So just like every other process, you know, priorities and people debate and sometimes they make deals. I don't know how it all works in a ward because I've never been right in a ward system, but this is my understanding. So, you know, you want project A, B and C in your ward and you work with your other councillors to get those in the big budget, budget package. And then uh, that same councillor who got all of his projects and voted against the budget as a whole, knowing it would pass because it was overwhelmingly supportive. Uh, the council was overwhelmingly supportive. So we got, they got to uh, you know, show themselves as the fiscal hawk on council, even though they argued long and hard just for their ward projects because uh, one can say that that potentially served that candidate um, or that councillor politically. One thing about not a ward system is that every decision is made for the betterment of the entire community and that priorities happen across uh, a broad section of the community versus, you know, an extremely influential ward councillor or those kinds of things. So I struggle with it. I, I know at election time it's really difficult and uh, I'm not sure how other jurisdictions handle that kind of, of uh, number. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not, I, I understand it at the election level why you'd want it. <laughs> But at the governance level, uh, I, I struggle with it. So uh, I wasn't much help there for you. But um, uh, I think it, again, it deserves a really good deep dive and whether it would serve the community of Lethbridge, um, you know, ask why you're going to a ward system. If it's, it's only because of the election, then maybe you should look, why can we do something about the election? If it's because you feel underserved in communities, uh, then maybe that's another conversation. But I, I think that's more important. Why do you want to do it to start with is a really good question to ask before you uh, decide. Next question comes from um, Laura Schultz. Elections Alberta are reporting are reported to have advised voters a yes to the equalization question would have been would have an immediate effect while it was while it was re retracted do you believe this influenced the yes vote uh again i think it's too early to tell but uh but but i think in my opinion elections alberta made an error uh in terms of having that posted or that perspective shared they're supposed to be a completely independent body that oversees and runs the, you know, oversees and regulates that versus um, making statements that could potentially influence. Again, too early to tell, but certainly I think the wrong thing to do. Leona Jacobs, is there an optimal time for or size, for or size of city where award system becomes appropriate? Again, I, I don't know. Uh, I have never been in, like I said, I, I get my information about wards uh, from colleagues and I have over the years. And I don't know that. Um, again, I think the first question we should ask is why we would want it. Um, and then if, uh, if from there, then we can create a good solution. Because one thing I know about community building, uh, we have to remember that communities are unique. They require unique solutions and we should, well, we should certainly be influenced and gathered by places that have good systems and have come to, we have to ultimately build it ourselves for it to be the most effective. So um, 
uh, I encourage this council if they're pursuing it to take that approach. Okay, and that's it for all our questions. Uh, Laura Schultz, Barry, thank you for your presentation today. Much food for thought. Thank you. And also on behalf of SACPA, thank you very much. Um, before we end the session, however, do you have a take-home message for our viewers? Yeah, I, I do, and, and that is to become involved and engaged. Uh, one of the things that supports our democracy, and certainly at the local level, is, this, is the participation of the community in the process, and not just the election process. It's not just the election. Uh, I, I think over the period of my, I've been on council for 16 of the last 22 years and certainly been part of politics um, all the time during that period of time. We are generally very well served by our councils. However, uh, it's really up to each individual to be involved and engaged in what's going on, to understand what's happening in our communities, to speak up and uh, to raise concerns when necessary, and to provide an opportunity for elected officials to gauge and understand whether they're going the right direction. And the only way they can do that is if we participate broadly. So my takeaway is that if you're watching today uh, and obviously you're interested in, in this, uh, you know, public affairs in your area, please, uh, please stay engaged, encourage your neighbours to become engaged and do it in a way that brings kindness and consideration to the, to the debate uh, so that we can all uh, have better communities at the end of the day, so. Okay. Thanks very much, everybody, for joining us. Uh, there's lots of thank yous now. Leona Jacobs, thank you. Ken Chapman, very informative and helpful in getting a better understanding. Uh, Beth Mandel, thank you and good luck. Again, on behalf of SACPA, thank you very much. And for our viewers, we hope that you'll join us next week on the topic of can solar energy breathe a new life into abandoned oil well sites with Keith Hirsch. Um, Thank you. Thank you very much. It was, it was a pleasure.